from VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Joanna, Zach, how are we doing? Great. Doing good. We're doing yeah. good. <laughs> I mean, come on. Don't, don't, don't answer it once. Um, <laughs> it is still so, so weird to be doing these like remotely where we can't really see each other. And I'm like, I know. Well, we never could see you, Zach, but at least. It's true. It was Lucky you. To, you know, it just, it is so funny. Um, but yeah, so uh, Zach, you know, what have you been up to recently? I see you got some press for your wine club. Congratulations. I Congratulations. did. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, it and it was wasn't nice from Vine Pair. <laughs> it was not from Vine Pair. No, 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 no. From, uh, from the good old Seattle Times. Uh, yeah. No, we, it's been good. Uh, bunch of hacks it's so there, cool. Bunch of hacks. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, no, they, uh, you know, it's, it's so weird. I think we've talked to, I think I might have mentioned this before, but like one of the coolest and yet strangest things for me has been to see just how much I really enjoy and missed like just pouring wine for people because, you know, it was a big part of my life before the pandemic. And obviously I knew sort of like, Oh, you know, I missed that, but you know, there, there, I don't think I realized how much I had missed it until I started doing it again in a way. And it's this, like, there is something that as much as I love doing the podcast and writing about wine and, and even teaching wine classes, um, you know, and, and enjoy doing it remotely, or at least was fine doing it remotely. There is nothing that's quite as, to me, enjoyable as being able to say, you know, here is something that I find delicious and interesting, but now you can try it. Like, Mm -hmm. I I don't just have to kind of talk at you about it or write about it. I mean, again, like doing those things too. Uh, But there's something about the immediate feedback of someone trying it and being like, oh yeah, this is really good. Or occasionally like, oh, okay, well, you know, next one, (laughs) maybe it'll be better. You know, these things happen. Um, And, and in that, in that vein, the, uh, one of the things that I was uh, pouring recently and that I really enjoyed is uh, was a rosé or, or as it's labeled here, a, a rosado from a Washington winery that was uh, founded by a guy who's from uh, the Rioja region uh, and has kind of two wineries. Uh, one is a more focuses on more kind of conventional varieties here in Washington. And then the his other label, which I think is kind of, you know, more his passion project, uh, focuses on Spanish varieties here in the state. And the rosado is a blend of uh, Graciano. Garnacha and Monastrell, so kind of a classic-ish blend, but not something you would, I think, see all that often in um, in Spain with a you know sort of dominant Graciano wine. But it's really good and uh, just like shows a different side of what most people expect from rosé. It's very savory and mm-hmm. and has kind of a like a almost a, like an earthy kind of terracotta quality um, that I really enjoyed. So it's fun to kind of pour that for people and get to show off things that uh, in that setting where you can do that thing where you're like, here, try a taste. You know, you don't have to buy the bottle. You don't have to buy a glass. You can just taste it and see. And uh, hopefully you like it. And that that piece of I don't know. Experiencing beverage uh, is something that I really miss dearly, and it's very nice to get back to it. So very cool with very someone cool. besides my my immediate family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and how how is the wine club going? It's going. I mean, it's it's <laughs> such a weird venture for me because it's it is. I was actually just talking to someone else about this today, about to one of my wine reps. That one of the hardest things for me, though, in transitioning into sort of focusing my buying on a wine club as opposed to really buying for a restaurant is. With a restaurant, I know exactly the setting in which people will be drinking the wine, right? They'll be drinking it in the restaurant with food. So that drives a lot of the thought process behind what I would buy and, and you know, kind of how does this work with our menu and to some extent? I mean, at least in part. And with a wine club, you know, you can offer people, and I do, you know, suggestions and, and all that. But you do kind of, you know, you, you the wine is out of your hands once someone picks up their wine or you deliver it or whatever. It's like they, they may drink it 
later that day, uh, you know, room temp white wine if they choose, or they might throw it in their freezer for an hour and drink it really too cold, or they might do who knows what. And you kind of have to, for me, it's like, I kind of have to, uh, A, you know, hard for me a little bit, like let go of some of that <laughs> control, but also B, kind of just be thoughtful in selections when it comes to wines that might really, uh, th- that are, that have a lot of different applications that are not, because I, cause I do think it's important for this kind of thing to pick wines some wines that might not need food um, because some people don't want to drink wine only with food. You know, there's mm-hmm. a, a big culture of that here in, in the U.S. of, you know, wine in, you know, wine after dinner or wine in the middle of the afternoon with nothing. You know, like there's there's that sort of thing. And I respect that and, and don't want to, you know, create a club of, and, and, and select wines that only work if you're having a full meal because mm-hmm. that I think won't be doing people a the service that I hope to do them. So it's, it's required a little bit of, of additional kind of uh, mental gymnastics on my part, but that's good. It keeps me somewhat mm. sharp. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Nice. Thanks. Yeah, man. It sounds, it sounds like it's, I mean, hopefully it's continuing to grow, which is awesome. And yeah, uh, yeah I mean, it's definitely like, it's a fun project to be working on for sure. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's nice to, to have that tangible piece of, of my work life. I'll say that. Totally. Joanna, what about you? I feel like I've been drinking quite a bit in the past week. Um, oh, on a bender. Did you go on a bender? Last week, Evan and I celebrated our anniversary. And Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it also happened to be the last week of service at one of our favorite restaurants, Racine. Oh, RB. In my neighborhood, yeah. Um, so we went there for dinner, and it was lovely, as it always is. And, you know, they were absolutely slammed and on, you know, with a skeleton staff and I I felt terrible, but it was really, you know, exciting to be there. And, um, we had some wonderful wines. We had, you know, a few glasses, skin contact, um, a Scott and a lovely Aligote, but we also had this really special bottle of a wine that they recommended. It was a 2012, okay, I'm going to try this, Ego Shuri, um, from Maison Aricha, from the Rulagi um, Appalachian, which is a very, very small Appalachian in southwest France, mm. in the French Basque oh. country. Um, it was a white blend of Gros Mansang, Petit Mansang, and Petit Corbeau. Oh. And it was it was wonderful. It, it was really potent and um, floral and, and uh, aromatic, but also really savory, like you were saying before, Zach. And um, huh. I really enjoyed that. Very cool. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're they're only closing right because the chef's leaving. Is is that the deal? Yeah. So they're like reinvent. So Racine, as the restaurant, won't exist anymore. But they're reinventing themselves as something else in the fall of this year because the chef is leaving. But as I understand it, Pascaline will be there. The rest of the like wine program and the drinks program will be there as well. Okay. Cool. Because mm-hmm. yeah, that that would have been like a kind of a bummer if <laughs> if everything was was gone. What about you, Adam? What are you drinking? So uh, what am I drinking? So I got to go out last week and have a pretty fun dinner with Josh. Uh, nice. My We're familiar. We're familiar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but Josh and I went to uh, – so like we used to like a lot Lure Fish Bar. Oh, it's like wow. It's like a fun restaurant. And we went on <laughs> Thursday. And we happened to be like – we had a meeting. And so we're like, let's just go to Lure. Uh, it's been forever. And we got this 2006 Chablis. Okay. From Daniel Etienne de Fay. Okay. And it was really, really awesome. Cool. Um, so basically, I'd never had a Chablis. So he only, it's 100% stainless steel. Okay. 
and then he ages it in bottle forever. So this is the current vintage on the market oh, is the 2006. Wow. wow. Which was really cool. And I don't know, Josh, I just both like, cause Josh really, uh, as has been documented before <laughs> is very much a Chablis lover, uh, oh, okay. or just like white burgundies in general. And, uh, so we were like saying, Oh, I guess look, let's get a bottle. And this bottle was on the list. And I was like, have you ever had a Chablis this old? And he hadn't, and I don't really think I ever have either. Um, and so we tried it and it was, it was super cool because it was still really like beautiful and refreshing, but then there was, you know, just this, these characteristics that you get with like aged white wine. Yeah. You know, so mm-hmm. sort of those, those almonds and stuff were starting to come out and it was just, it was very crazy. And I was talking to the psalm and just asking like, why is this the current vintage? Like, it's got to know why makers crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, like, you know, I just love when that's the answer. Like, crazy. Like, you know, this is what he likes I to do. That. Like, he likes to, you know, <laughs> he likes, this is how he likes his Chablis. And he, you know, this is how he wants to release it. I was like, damn. Like, that's also, that also shows you, you know, what you can do. And it's like, you know, you, it's like, there's a wine that's been in your family or whatever for generations. Yeah. Like, I can afford to hold the 2006 until 2021 <laughs> and make it the current vintage. Yeah. We've talked about this before, I think, Adam, about how, like, it's one of those things that you see in some places in Europe, which is just, it will never, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say never, but it's almost impossible to imagine happening here in the States or in a lot of other new world regions where someone is like, yeah, whatever, we'll release it in 15 years when I think it's ready. Like, unless you're making, unless you're making bourbon, like no one is doing that. Yeah, not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, yes, yeah, so that was a, that was a pretty fun night. And then I don't know, over the weekend, you know, um, I had like a really, a thing that I did that I hadn't done in a while was, uh, Naomi and I went to a, like a beer garden on, um, yeah, which was, which was great. We went to like this beer garden on, um, on Sunday afternoon after we went and saw some exhibits at the Brooklyn museum and it was fun. And like, I hadn't done that before. And like, I just had like a, a pint of Pilsner and mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this is, you know, this has been a while. Oh, and one other thing, cause I did do one other amazing thing, which is I went to my favorite restaurant in New York city, Ooh. which is Misada. Um, oh. It's amazing. And it's just the best. And Tomer, the chef was there and he and I like got to catch up, which was nice, but also they always have just really cool wines. And so I had a really amazing orange wine that I did not take a picture of or write down. So I cannot tell you what it was, <laughs> uh, but also a really cool cocktail that was like sort of a, a riff on, on sort of like a, a gin fizz, but it had a rock in it. Oh, nice. Um, and so it was really interesting. And I feel like, and it was funny because when I ordered it, the um, server, she was like, do you know what a rock is? <laughs> I was like, no, 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 I, I do. And she's like, okay. She's like, this is a very polarizing cocktail. <laughs> yeah. Because it has, you know, such an ana- strong anise note. I feel like mm-hmm. I'm just like, whoa, <laughs> what is yeah. this? But it was, uh, it was really fun and really, really delicious. And so that's what I've been up to. Yeah. <laughs> so what we want to talk about today, which I think is really interesting is, you know, if you polled the majority of American drinkers and you asked them what the number two most popular beer is in America, they probably wouldn't be able to tell you. Most, if you ask them number one, I assume would guess Bud Light and they would be right. But if you ask them number two, I think you'd hear, you know, a range of beers. You'd hear, you know, oh, Budweiser. You'd hear Coors Light. You'd hear Miller Light. You'd hear, um, you know, maybe even Corona. Bud Limerita, you know? Yeah, maybe that. (laughs) Who who knows? (laughs) No. but the beer that is actually the, the number two most popular beer in America and, you know, the number one import, which is surprising to a lot of people, is Modelo Especial. And I think, you know, we published an article last week about this, you know, written by Tim McCurdy on our team. Mm-hmm. 
And I think what is so interesting about this is it allows us to look at, you know, how everyone kind of missed this, right? This was a, this is a beer that's been growing in popularity for the last decade, but still most Americans are unaware that it's so huge. And there's a few reasons for that, right? It's part of what makes it huge is that it's just massive in, a, in certain regions, right? So mm-hmm. like that just massive popularity then allows it to just sort of be number two because it's number one in so many places. Yep. But I think it's also that we just maybe don't look at certain beers seriously enough. Um, so I'm curious, like how did you both react when you heard that Modelo was number two? And do both of you drink Modelo? Well, I, I've, yeah, I certainly drink Modelo. I don't know that I buy it often. I've had it before. I edited Tim's piece that went up last week and I was pretty surprised. I have to say, I, you know, maybe somebody could have mentioned that it was popular and I would have said, you know, like, you know, it's popular in dive bars or dive specials or something like that. But the data backing this up was very surprising to me. Yeah, totally. And I think for me, you know, it's like I would have, without the data, I would have lumped Modelo Especial in with Pacifico or some of the other, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of fairly, you know, widely available, recognizable. Yeah, yeah, Tecate, et cetera. These Mm -hmm. these sort of like widely available, you know, uh, Mexican lagers that are imported to the U.S. But like, I would have bet an alarming sum of money that Corona would be by far the number one imported Mexican beer in the country. And I would have been totally wrong. And And what's interesting to me about this, in addition to just sort of that fact, right, that like a thing that most everyone would assume is in fact wrong, which is worth noting, is also something that Tim highlighted in his piece, which is like, this is not necessarily a new phenomenon. Like, Modelo has been on this upward trajectory for a really long time. And yet, you know, it it just, whether it's because like, I don't see it advertised as much. I mean, again, part of my, uh, you know, perception of Corona is driven by the fact that they advertise it very aggressively, much more aggressively, at least in English, than they yeah. adverti- advertise Modelo Especial. Right. And again, part of it is also where is Modelo Especial advertised on UFC, which is not something I watch um, personally, mm-hmm. but like, obviously, there's a huge audience for it. And and so I think like, a thing I want to get to at some point in this conversation is like, what does this tell us about other things we might be missing? But on the specific topic of Modelo Especial, it's funny to me when I think about this, because it's also true that when I have been places to eat where, you know, your sort of selection of beers tend to be, you know, kind of your, your the, that slate of imported Mexican lagers, that's, Modelo Especial is always what I would pick. Like, it's my yeah. favorite of those beers. I think it's you know, significantly better tasting than the others. And so it's kind of cool that actually, like, I'm, <laughs> everyone seems to agree with me. <laughs> well, I think what's really interesting about Modelo Especial is that it's not... It ha- it's it's weird in that like it, ha- it there def- there definitely has been a marketing campaign right like the, in the article they talk about it, that the ground game was really good right like Constellation who basically mm-hmm. has built the brand in the U S and made it as huge as it is and for those of who aren't familiar right so when AB and Bev bought you know Grupo Modelo and they basically took control across the world you know our Justice Department said you can't do that in America you need to sell those brands to someone else in America Constellation bought Modelo Corona etc. And Constellation's just done this incredible job of building this brand in these stores. And I actually think what they've done, which is really interesting, and that they were able to do because Modelo didn't have an already pretty broad market awareness, is they were able to build it separate from Mexican restaurants. Yeah. So Corona has really come become synonymous with like the beach and with like you're out having Mexican food and like you have a Corona with lime. 
And and honestly, to, to some extent, Negro Modelo has become that as well, right? That yeah. it was always a marketing campaign for it. Mm-hmm. Modelo Especial kind of has this position of like, it's a really well-made imported Mexican lager. It, and it can be drunk everywhere. I mean, basically at any dive bar you go to, it is at this point in mm-hmm. time, one of the tap handles, yeah. you know, it, mm-hmm. it's drunk. It, it is like, it's the new PBR. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is what has been brilliant about its growth is that it's not tied to specific occasions where you think, oh, I'm going to the beach. I should pick up some Modelo's. Yes, you should. And if you like Modelo, people probably do. But it's not like the thing. Whereas, you know, people are like, oh, we're going to the beach. Like, I guess we have to have Corona. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which has really allowed it to explode. And it's, I think it's also like, you know, some of it is just even things like the packaging, which has a little bit of a, of a you know, like the foil has a little bit of like Flare. an upscale vibe to it. Mm-hmm. And like, I think the the PBR comparison is a really fascinating one because I, I would be curious both of your thoughts on this. Like PBR's popularity, I think, was born out of this notion that it had both a combination of like it was affordable, widely available, mm-hmm. but it wasn't as well known. And it was it had the cachet of like, you know, of, of history behind it. Right. It was this idea that here's a beer that has been made for, you know, over a century. That's not entirely the case with Modelo Especial, but I think that some of it is like, it's been around for a long time. And I think it's like, it just, it, maybe it's lack of, it's not overexposed. So it feels like, even if you're drinking right. the number two beer in the country, you don't feel that way when you order it. Yeah, I agree. I think it's like, it's cheap, but not the cheapest. And it's not one of the biggest macro beers or light beers out there. I also find it really interesting, like it's success really interesting because it's not one of the light beers and it kind of bucks this bigger trend of like, low calorie light beers and health and wellness in the space that I find just really interesting about this beer. Yeah. I think it's also interesting too, because like it, it's, it's well regarded by lots of people and lots of people think it's their mm-hmm. beer. And a lot of those people right. who think it's their beer don't think anyone else drinks it. Right. So like, I think, right. you know, if you talk to a lot of people in the Latinx community, they think like it's their beer, you know, it's not really consumed by many other people besides people who are Latinx. Not true. I think, you know, there's lots of right. people like you hear from brewers, winemakers, psalms, people who work the floor, whatever, who say like it's it's like a it's an industry beer, right? It's like what you drink at the end of the shift mm-hmm. or whatever. Lots of cooks. That's totally true, but that's not the only people who drink it. You know, like it's funny that it's found all these different communities and every community feels like they own it and that it's theirs, which I think is really special about it. Whereas like the the problem with PBR that, you know, I think sort of hurt it a little bit was that it really did become labeled like the hipster beer. And yep. during that time mm-hmm. of like, you know, the the mid, you know, I guess what, what, 2005 really to like 2012, 2013 when it was really on fire. Like it was sometimes like Brooklyn, the Strokes, like that was what it was. It was that kind of group of people that drank Pabst. And that is a very different it's a it's a much more diverse group of people that drink Modelo Especial, which is also so incredible and just absolutely bonkers. Um, and everyone drinks it in so many different formats. Like I've seen it in you know the the bottles that you're talking about, Zach, which I do think you know the foil is like a nice touch. But then I've seen it in the cans. I've seen it in the tiny seven ounces. I've seen it in the massive tall boys. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just across the board. Everyone drinks it and everyone loves it. Yeah, and and of course on draft in a lot of places too. Everywhere. And that, and that I think is maybe another area that, and that we, we kind of mentioned this before, but it's another area that I think it sets it apart a little bit, which is like Corona. It's, you know, maybe it's kind of nearest competitor, even though obviously they're both owned by Constellation. You, you almost, it, it exists in other formats, but like 
people think of Corona and they think of, yeah, you don't, the bottle of Corona with lime, right? Like that is, yeah, yeah. If you're not drinking it that way, kind of how are you drinking it? And Modelo, despite having all these other, all these formats, which work, isn't as tied to one specific packaging format. So it can dominate on-premise, on tap, but also these various off-premise formats as well. Totally. And I think what you said, you know, it, and it dominates because you don't have to, you don't have to be a bark program that has limes on hand, like fresh limes on hand to yeah. be able to, to serve Modelo, which I think, again, like if I'm going to a tailgate and I'm picking up Modelo, I don't want to also be like, oh, I better pick up like five limes to slice up. So that yeah, let me bring my cutting board and paring knife. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and that's very different. Whereas like if you're going to the beach and you bring Coronas, you better have limes. Yeah. You know, so it's it's just it's nuts. I mean, I'm I'm curious, like Joanna, why, why do you think we it, this has been missed so badly by so many people? So much, so much of the press, so much of like the you know just industry in general. How do you think we all miss this? I don't, yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know if it's just like because there is the data to back it up, and it's theoretically existed for years at this point. Like, I I feel like maybe it wasn't trendy or it wasn't. Like in, in craft beer communities, there was just so much else going on that it was easy to miss. And then, of course, there are the big macro brands that people are always talking about and what's happening with them. I also think like, yeah, it just has managed to fly kind of under the radar. And to your point, Adam, like everyone thinks that it's theirs without really acknowledging that other communities really love it. And then as a result, have, you know, created this extreme growth for for the brand. And I also think, I don't know, there's this other thing, uh, this other thing that I've kind of been thinking about in this conversation and something we've touched on editorial meetings before, but like this younger generation's attraction to international brands and and not American brands that I think also potentially could play a role in this conversation. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting how like these, the, there are imported brands in general that you say like we have an attraction to and that we, they kind of become different things in our market, right? Mm-hmm. So like, I actually don't know, to be fair, you know, sort of where Modelo sits in, you know, its home market. Mm-hmm. But I've always found it really interesting with a brand like Stella, right? So in the US, like we think of it as this like fancy imported Belgian beer, but like in a lot of Europe, including especially in Great Britain, Tim loves to share this fact, like it's like, it's the cheap beer. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like the cheap like beer that everyone drinks, you know, when they're out watching soccer because it has a little bit higher alcohol and it's, you know, it, it's the party beer. And I, and yeah. it's just funny that it came here. And we're like, Oh, an import from Belgium must be fancy. Mm-hmm. And, and we treat it very differently, but that's, what's also kind of interesting to me is like, I don't feel like we, there's a treatment of Modelo that is by a lot of consumers that is especially Mexican, if that makes sense. And I'm, yeah. and I mean that in like a, more stereotypical Mexican the way Americans tend to do things, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. the way we treat Corona, like, well, you have your nachos, you better have Corona, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's not siloed it's, off into it that really isn't. category, right. right? And that's and that is so fascinating to me. Yeah, well, it's like it's one of the anecdotes that Tim shares in the story or, or data points, which is like it's a huge beer at Buffalo Wild Wings, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's it's one yeah. of their absolute best sellers, and like makes sense, like sort of pairing wise you know of course you want like a light lager or, or a lager with your with your wings but like it's that exact point right they're not like you don't see it dominating because only it's huge at 
yeah, Mexican restaurants and things like that. It's mm-hmm. it's big in lots of places. And and I want to advance another thought on this and I think maybe talk about why, you know, this question of like why why it's been missed, especially mm-hmm. because the data is so clear mm-hmm. and so readily available. I mean, we are not the only people who get this sales data. It's I think that it's it, it's a combination of two trends. And one of them is what you hinted at at the beginning, Adam, which is like a lot of its success is driven by sales uh, in the Southwest, in the Midwest, like mm-hmm. places that certainly have lots of people and lots of media of their own. But, you know, let's be honest, drinks media and drinks, you know, kind of ad agencies and stuff like that are mostly in New York. And it's not a huge beer in New York. I mean, it's obviously readily available. I'm sure it still sells quite well, but it's not, its dominance is driven by other markets. And that's yeah, it's, it's definitely not massive in New York, for sure. Yeah, like yeah. you see it, but you don't see it. Like it's yeah. not everywhere, even in the way that PBR was everywhere. It definitely isn't in the same way. Yeah. And then I think the other part is like, it is a reminder that we are all, even those of us who are in this industry, you know, are professionals, we are, I think, really still, our coverage and our and our thought is sometimes driven by these sort of weird two competing poles. One is like a desire to look for something new and trendy, which is totally understandable. I mean, part mm-hmm. of our job is to be, you know, aware of what is happening and, and can inform people of it bef- maybe before it hits their market or before it's everywhere, you know, so that people can try something out if they're interested in it or be a, be apprised of the situation. And also then it's this sort of, uh, the flip side is of course, you know, kind of covering in its own way, the really, really big brands and, and somehow, and I think it's because, um, because of the way that, um, that whole sale and, and the, the sale of the brands to Constellation was so covered at the time about being about Corona first and foremost, that everyone kind of just in the media sort of said like, oh yeah, you know, they got six brands, you know, Corona and then XXXXX. And that's understandable, but it's like a good reminder to us to revisit and be like, hey, you know, this thing that we assumed eight years ago may not still hold true. And the data pointed that out to us. And I think it's great that we we really looked at it and, and, and you know, found the story here. But it's also to me then, and I want to throw out a, a suggestion to both of you or a question to both of you, I guess, is like, do we sometimes think that trends are over before they are? And the one that occurred to me when I was planning for this is like, I have seen a lot and heard a lot, both kind of written and also just kind of, you know, talked about the like, ugh, pumpkin beer over. But like, I'm curious, and maybe we can dig into this for another episode, because I don't have the numbers in front of me. I wonder if it, that is in fact true, or because I I see lots of them, you know, lots of people are getting their, their, you know, their pumpkin beer, uh, you know, in stuff out, you know, they're making it now because it's, you know, even though it's the middle of August, or it's early August, they're, they, you know, got to look ahead if you're a brewery. And, and that's the kind of trend I wonder if we're like, you know, have already written off, but in fact is still really, really popular. I mean, you don't I want to. I it still is, right? Well, I, I'm not asking what you think about pumpkin spice beer. No, we've already no, uh, we've already I been don't there. Like it. I hate it. <laughs> I, I mean, I wish it was over. Um, no, I think that like I think it's definitely not over. I no, think no. people wouldn't keep making it if it wasn't if it exactly. wasn't popular. I mean, I think we we have a tendency to do that in general and and try to write things off, say things are over. You know, not look as close. I, I think one of the biggest you know lessons that this teaches us is there's a lot of lifestyle coverage out there that really fails to look deeply at data. We've talked about this a bunch on this podcast, but I think, you know, data doesn't lie. Like that's what you learn in journalism school. You know, like we're talking about the coronavirus, like, you know, we're talking about vaccination rates. Those journalists are looking at data. (laughs) They're not just saying that vaccinations are, or are low because they, you know, they walked by a few vaccination sites and aren't seeing lines because 
they're saying it's low because they're literally looking at the data um, and they're saying it's slowing or increasing. And I think that's the same for drinks is that is re- it really is important to have a gut check where you say, okay, like, so what do sales numbers look like? Is it, have they been declining year over year over year? I mean, like we know, for example, that wine under $10 has been declining in its popularity and in its sales for the last few years, right? It's, it is a shrinking category. Like while there are still some brands that are pretty decently sized in that category, the category is shrinking. It's, it's basically disappearing, right? Which is great for American wine culture in all honesty, right? I'd, it's, we'd rather that everyone's drinking nicer wines, a little bit more expensive wines, taking it a little bit more seriously. That that's good for wine culture, but like, yeah. you know, that's supported by data. We, you know, 20 years ago could have said that and that wouldn't have been true. <laughs> Right. So I think that, yeah, I think that that's how we miss a lot of this stuff is we just, you know, we declare trends or we, or we declare things dead without trying to look and say like, well, you know, what actually do the numbers say? Or alternatively declare things alive without the information. I mean, to bring up something that was on Twitter Mm -hmm. the other day, hate to do this, but like, you know, uh, Bill Schufeld, who's the founder of Athletic Brewing, who I interviewed, I think is a great dude, love love the brewery, but his claim that in five years, 20% of the beer industry will be non-alcoholic is just like, that that's just not like it just no no <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to do the math here but there are it, it's just he, he, i get it you know he has a stake a very obvious right. stake in right. in that coming to be true but like we should not and do not obviously just take that at face value because someone said it like there's mm-hmm. data that you can look at that shows what the share, market share for na beer or any anything is and it is you know frankly a lot smaller than certain people would have you believe because it's their beat or their passion or whatever. And that's fine. You know, the person who makes it needs to be, needs to believe in its, in its potential. But, you know, we as journalists do not need to take their words as gospel. No. Mm-hmm. Although a lot of people often do, which is what's so like, cause again, everyone needs to file a story, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, yeah, 100%. Like look at, look at the non-alcoholic sales and separate it and, and separate it out, truly separate it out. As we talked about a bunch from low alcohol and it's really small. You know, I think that when, when I interviewed the, the founder of liars, uh, you know, not call spirits and he's saying, you know, they're a $50 million, $50 million revenue company. And they're the biggest non-alcoholic spirits company in the world. That's not a big market. No. If 50 million makes you the biggest, you know, non-alcoholic company in the world. So I think, you know, again, like you said, that's within people's interest. Like he's, you know, he's a salesman. He has to say that 20%. Sure. Oh my gosh. But that's crazy. But yeah, I think what is really amazing is we could, ha- we could have noticed Modelo. We just didn't. Right. We looked around exactly. and said, Oh, I also think that there was a, a maybe we just like lumped it in sadly. Yeah. You know, like, oh, it's just like, Oh Mexican well, yeah. Log- guess, yeah. Yeah. Mexican mm-hmm. loggers like, Oh yeah. Well, so, I mean, if it's big, like, so is Corona, so is Tecate, right. Mm-hmm. So is Soul, like all the other ones. And we, we, we failed to like truly examine and say, actually is this one standing out above all others. And when you do do that, you're like, holy shit it is. But I also think like, that's why it's so special. Like this, this piece is, is pretty special because if you do try to search for another piece on it, like it doesn't really exist. So even yeah. after all this time, we're still, we're still the first ones kind of publishing this, this piece. Yeah, it was, it was hiding in plain sight and right. yet had a fat and like, and I think that point is very good. Like, there was a fascinating story to tell here that everyone either completely ignored or if they saw those numbers, assumed there was nothing to say, which is silly, but hey, good for us. Good for yeah. Tim. <laughs> totally. Well, this is fascinating. Hopefully there will, I'm going to go have a Modelo, I think actually. Yeah, <laughs> good call. I'm, I'm really craving one. Um, 
I want to say if if you guys out there like let I mean obviously hopefully if there's something this obvious in in the beer category or other categories uh let us know but if there are things that we're overlooking like you know uh specific drinks in particular like mm-hmm. you know whether it's a beer a wine a a spirit or whatever like yeah, well, that we've certainly covered that one some, but but yeah, like those things are are super fascinating to us, and sometimes we find out about them because of you guys. Like you tell us what we're missing; it's super helpful. Totally. Well, Zach, Joanna, great conversation as always. See you next week. Thanks. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.